Good evening, everybody, and welcome to this, the ninth and penultimate lecture in the Rare Book School Summer Lecture Series. Our speaker today, Mariana Shreve Simpson, uh, received her PhD from Harvard University in 1978 and has gone on to a truly dazzling career, including positions at the Center for Advanced Study in the Visual Arts at the National Gallery of Art, where she was the Associate Dean from 1980 to 1992, at the Freer Gallery of Art and the Arthur M. Sackler Gallery in the Smithsonian Institution, where she was the Curator of Islamic Art from 1992 to 1995, and at the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore, where she was the Director of Curatorial Affairs and the Curator of Islamic Art from 1995 to 2000. Over the years, Sharif Simpson has taught as a visiting faculty member at UCLA, Georgetown, Princeton, Johns Hopkins, the University of Maryland College Park, the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, the Maryland Institute College of Art, the University of Pennsylvania, her alma mater, and the Bard Graduate Center in New York. But perhaps, just perhaps, the most glittering appointment that she has held was in 2006 when she was on the faculty of Rare Book School. <laughs> Mariana Shreve Simpson has also served as president of the Historians of Islamic Art Association from 2011 to 13, and as a consultant for the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Art, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Aga Khan Trust for Culture. She's currently visiting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania and guest curator at the Princeton University Art Museum. Among her many awards are a senior fellowship at the Center for Advanced Study in the Visual Arts at the National Gallery of Art, a collaborative research award from the Getty Grant Program, a senior fellowship from the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the most glittering prize of all, membership in the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. Her forthcoming book, Princeton's Great Persian Book of Kings, will be published by Yale University Press in November. It is an enormous privilege for Rare Book School to have as our lecturer this evening, Mariana Shreve Simpson. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. That was far too generous. Um, delighted to be here, to be back at the Rare Book School. And um, I'm especially glad to have a chance of uh, this interdisciplinary gathering to talk about a, a topic that's intrigued me for a long time and that, to me at least, seems to sort of resonate well beyond the field of my own field of Islamic manuscript studies. And I dithered a little bit about um, the best way to frame the topic and particularly to connect it to the interests of the Rare Book School. And in the end, I decided to take the easy way out and just to basically tell you about my very first encounters with what I've come to think of as acts of artistic concealment, and particularly with the seemingly little explored phenomenon of, hidden, of secret signatures, hidden signatures. So um, many years ago, 
while I was a research associate at the Freer's, uh, at the Smithsonian's Freer Gallery of Art, I had the privilege of uh, organizing, putting together a little exhibit of 16th century Persian manuscripts and paintings from the Freer's very important, really stellar collection. And among the works of art to be displayed was a deluxe volume of seven poems uh, by, written by a very famous Persian poet named Abdurrahman Jami. So Jami's opus is entitled Haftaran, which means Seven Thrones, and the richly illuminated and illustrated volume in the Freer, which is commonly known as the Freer Jami, and that's how I'll uh, refer to it this evening, was made between 1556 and 1565, and it was made for a prince of the ruling Safavid dynasty named Sultan Ibrahim Mirza. Now, before I go any further, let me just remind you what I know you already know, which is that Persian, like Arabic and Hebrew, reads from right to left, one. And two, these uh, screens, uh, images, on the bottom, sometimes left, here on the left, and sometimes right, there's a number, and that correlates to the handouts that you were given. And I did that selfishly so that I wouldn't have to spend time typing on them on the text on the screens, and it would be easier for all of us to follow along. So um, <clears throat> by the time I was asked to do this little exhibition, I already had some academic familiarity with the 28 beautiful full-page miniature paintings in this manuscript, but I had never actually held the volume in my hands. So um, one day, there I was in the uh, Freer storage room, and I was slowly turning the folios one by one again. I was turning them. This way. That's all right. That way. Uh, and um, just to remind you, just to re reiterate, that there are seven poems in this volume, and each of these poems opens with a beautiful title piece or headpiece. So I was going, my, working my way through the manuscript, and I finally get to the poem that's entitled Yusuf and Zuleha, which means, which is the equivalent of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. It's the Persian equivalent of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. So I reached that part of the manuscript, and unlike the empty, empty headpieces or title pieces here, this one, the gold cartouche in the center, has an inscription, which is a little poem that extols Jami's verses, and you see the translation right there. So I was pondering this poem, and then I was sort of perusing the illumination, the decoration around it, and I spied an odd break. Well, the slides in a moment, I'll show you. I spot an odd break in the frame right underneath the gold cartouche that's inscribed with the poem. So I looked more closely and I saw this line of writing, which translates as illuminated by Abdullah Shiraz. In other words, a signature. So you can imagine, I shrieked and the collections manager came running. <laughs> And I expected, him, I expected him to say, oh, wow, how exciting. And he said, very matter-of-factly, oh, yeah, Priscilla Suchek saw that last year. Well, Professor Suchek is a very distinguished colleague at NYU, and in fact, she had seen it and published a little article about this and a few years later. But to me, this was my first, and as you can tell, still very, very memorable experience. Um, this is a minute and all but invisible signature. It's the equivalent of two eyelashes side by side, if you can imagine that. Um, and so just to put this, I'm going to go back one, just to put this in codicological perspective, um, the, the folios of the Freer Jami are actually quite generous. They measure 34 and a half by 
23 and a half roughly centimeters, and the lower section of the headpiece <coughs> measures about 7.5 by 13 centimeters. So that's why I say two eyelashes side by side. So I'm going to fast forward some years later, <coughs> and I'm late at night in um, my study at home in Baltimore. And I was going, I'm going over the proofs for my forthcoming monograph on the Freer drawing. And once again, I'm in the Yusuf and Zuleha, the same Joseph and Potiphar's wife, part of the text. And I'm, this time, instead of, of course, I'm at home, so I'm using a transparency to check the transcription and trans- transliteration of a verse that's written over the archway. This is actually a scene of Joseph, um, the innocent pr- protesting, I'm sorry, the young child protesting Yusuf or Joseph's innocence. That's what the illustration uh, depicts. So I'm looking at, using a transparency, I'm looking at this, um, this illustration and looking at this verse, and my eye is caught, and you know what's happening next because I see it's on your poster for this evening's talk, but my eye is caught by a little squiggle in the lower left under the, in the brickwork underneath the, in, in this poetic inscription. And I root around and I find a magnifying glass and I look more closely at the transparency and I see written by Sheikh Mohammed, the painter, another signature. So um, you can imagine I didn't sleep a wink. The first thing I could in the morning, I called a freer colleague who personally went and looked at the illustration and confirmed my reading. And she also measured the brick, which is two millimeters square. So, um, one last personal reminiscence. When um, my son was about two or three years old, he and I enjoyed this book, Who's Hiding Here, by the illustrator Yoshi. And it it features, as on the cover, mostly fish, but some animals in camouflage, and then each page has a little ditty, like on the left, and ends with Who's Hiding Here. So, my son's now 30, so his... (laughs) The copy of the book that we read together has long since vanished, but luckily Amazon is good for a replacement. So I was able to uh, take this shot for you. But the title just stuck with me all these years, and it seemed like a very apt appropriation for the topic this evening. So, of course, who is hiding here is only the beginning of this issue. And I should say that um, it's a conundrum uh, dealing with... uh, signatures in early modern Persian manuscripts, but as we'll see in a minute, uh, we could, might be able to say that about artists and signatures in other cultures. But in addition to the who's hiding here, there is the where. Somewhere I have another picture. Yes, I'm back to Sheikh Mohammed for a moment. Uh, there's also the where, as in where do signatures appear, and the what, as in what do they say, and I think of greatest interest, the why. Uh, By definition, a signature is a written name, which in the case of a work of art, manifests and articulates its creator's presence and attests to and authenticates its artist's agency, that is, the authorship for the work on which the signature appears. Or as Rona Goffin once very succinctly put it, a signature promises that the work of art on which it is written is autograph. So if Sheikh Mohammed here who by the time that he did this illustration was already a mature Safavid artist, a mature Safavid court artist, that's a key point, he's a court artist, 
If he wanted to claim full or partial responsibility for the use of illustration as his autograph work, why did he inscribe his name in such an obscure place and in such a minuscule hand? And what, years ago, I did attempt to um, address this question, <clears throat> the question of motivation and meaning, you know, the, what prompts it and what does it mean? Uh, and I focused on the fact that, and this, sorry, this is a little Persian point, that the, the formulation he used includes the noun for write, written, katabahu, and the, sorry, the verb for written, and the noun for painter, musavir, and I argued that he was explicitly proclaiming a dual role in the composition of this illustration, both as the writer of the inscription over the arch and as the painter of the scene. But even with that, it still begs the question of his signature's inconspicuous placement and its minute size. So I'm going to show you, there's going to be a blank for a moment. Um, I'd like to today pursue a broader inquiry and consider a larger body of evidence for hidden signatures <clears throat> drawn from 15th and 16th century manuscripts. Uh, please keep in mind that I've said broader and larger and not broadest and largest because to do this topic full justice, well, we'd be here all night, but anyway, uh, it really we should consider it in the context of signatures as markers of individual identity, uh, social standing, workshop practices and relations uh, and relation, workshop practices and relations both among artists and among artists and their patrons. And all that would have to be within um, <clears throat> Islamic visual traditions in general and Persian art in particular. And an important step in that direction has already been taken by my fellow historians of Islamic art, Sheila Blair and Jonathan Bloom, who've done a kind of overview of signatures and what, how they're formulated. But they haven't really discussed hidden ones um, although they did discuss, have discussed signatures as evidence for Islamic artistic production in medieval and early modern times. And so I'm indebted to their work and also um, <clears throat> for the perspectives uh, in their studies of the late art historian uh, Rona Goffin and Louise, uh, Louisa Matthew, who I hope is still with us, not late. Um, and both of them focused on signatures in Italian Renaissance painting. Um, although their, stu their studies didn't ne haven't necessarily addressed the issue of artistic secrecy. And of course, there's a big difference between Italian Renaissance painting, it's um, pl the place, the medium, the uh, production, the purpose, the viewing, and all of that, a big difference between that and manuscripts and anywhere. Anyway, I do think that the subject deserves a pan-cultural approach, but that's maybe another day. So already uh, during my... <coughs> my long-ago encounters with Abdullah of Shiraz and Sheikh Mohammed within the folios of the Freer Jami, I realized that any study of such hidden signatures would it be at best a hit-or-miss proposition. After all, it's only by accident. Why don't I go back to Sheikh Mohammed? Yes, it's only by accident. I mean, it's a complete fluke. So it's only by accident, or to put it uh, more, put it in a positive way, by good fortune, that one chances upon these inscriptions since they were evidently meant either to be undetected by the casual or uninitiated viewer or to be searched and claimed as prizes in the equivalent of a codicological treasure hunt. So these many years later, during which I've uh, compiled a small corpus of other examples, but it keeps growing because people know I'm interested and they keep saying, oh, look what I found at University of Michigan, for instance. Um, 
I, but I now appreciate that signature concealment was not just the idiosyncrasy of Sheikh Mohammed and Abdullah of Shiraz. Uh, indeed, and as best I've been able to divine, although not necessarily to explain, it seems to have been a much older and far-flung practice. And let me now go ahead. Um, <clears throat> and, and interestingly, what seems to be the uh, and what seem to be the earliest instances all date from the eighth to the eleventh centuries. And I'm going to show you some examples moving from east to west. So this is a Chinese landscape <clears throat> painting of circa 1030 by the Sung Dynasty master Fan Huang, who inscribed his name within the foliage in the lower right of his, this of his monumental composition. It is a huge painting, I'm told. It's, I haven't ever seen it. And I understand that this, these characters, you can sort of make them out in the black and white. The characters were only discovered in the mid-20th century. So a thousand plus years after he painted. Equally elusive are the minuscule signatures of dye engravers tucked within the marginal inscriptions of coins struck in 10th century Iran and measuring at most three and a half centimeters in diameter. Here, these have been recently published and with drawings that help us see what we're supposed to see. Um, <clears throat> and it's these, this, these epigraphic tour de force Tours de Force with an S are all the more remarkable because the dye engravers worked in reverse in order to have the coin struck with the, the signatures or anything legible. The dye and the mold, whatever I don't know enough about coins, is in reverse. The dyes, the original dyes, are in reverse. And finally, for something more legible and, <clears throat> and perhaps more familiar, here are signatures of two French illuminators incorporated into the decoration of Christian liturgical manuscripts. Um, there's and I've reversed. I've shown you, showing you the full folios and then details that are flipped so that they're more easily uh, more easily read. So the lower left is David, or maybe it's David, in the initial B of a late eighth century sacramentary, and Gideon in the left side of the upper arch of a canon table in an early ninth century gospel from Tours. So Gideon is there. G E D E O N. Um, Again, I show these examples only for the purposes of confirming the cultural range of discrete signatures and not to suggest a period phenomenon, although it is kind of tempting. Um, <clears throat> and I have to say, however, that while my colleague who published the coin that we, the coins that we looked at a moment ago and the die engravers, um, he speculated, that colleague speculated on the purpose of these hidden signatures placing it in the context of cultural production, sorry, currency production in 10th century Iran, I have yet to come across any explanation for the placement and size of those by Fan Quan or David, David, or Gideon. But somebody here I know will correct me. Somebody can explain to me why they did this. But now I'm going to turn to the practice in early modern Persian manuscripts and to a few interrelated conclusions that I've reached over the years. The first one is <clears throat> that the same manuscript may contain both perfectly visible and virtually invisible signatures, the same manuscript, in which case the visible ones are always those of its scribe and the invisible ones are of its painter or illuminator. So the Freer Jami with which I began my talk provides a perfect example. It has multiple colophons and here are two of them in which here Muhib, ooh, um, Muhib Ali 
signed his name and Mohib al Balami signed his name, and they also included the names of the patron, Sultan Ibrahim Mirza, in these colophons. Perfectly legible, even when you're seeing it in the original size, and you can't miss, you can't, no problem with this. But the, two, the other, the artists, Abdullah and Sheikh Mohammed, did their best not to be visible, whereas their scribal colleagues wanted to be perfectly legible. So, point number two. The same painter or illuminator can sign his name in different places and in different sizes within the same manuscript. The latter is a purely relative and quantitative distinction. All signatures are small, like these, but some are smaller, and some others, still others, are small est. So here's some ways to think about this. Mini, <clears throat> macro, nano, tiny, teeny, teeny weeny. Um, Interestingly, even the smallest inscriptions can be seen with the naked eye, assuming that you know where to look for them, or you're lucky enough to win that game of artist, artist hide and art historian seek. But nanosignatures defy, generally defy regular photographic reproduction. And let me just introduce the signature scale and its optical challenges with um, a breviary <clears throat> commissioned by a Hungarian prelate in the latter part of the 15th century and illuminated by the Milanese artist Francisco, or maybe it's Francisco, excuse me, da Costello. So he signed the painting on the left, which is the feast of Corpus Christi, on this banderole, perfectly easy to read, and I've transcribed it there. And, or so Jonathan Alexander assures me, with a magnifying glass, you can read the first three letters of his name in this illumination here. But Jonathan had to tell me where to look for me to find it. So, um, a few short decades later, after this manuscript was done, um, a Persian artist named Mir Musavir performed a sing similar act of concealment within a celebrated copy of the Persian Book of Kings, uh, inscribing his name on the hat band. You see where I've uh, outlined it in red. Uh, on, the, on one of the attendants of the illustrations of this particular enthronement scene, which is one of 258 in the manuscript. Had the authors of the monograph on this famous manuscript not pointed out this inscription, I, for one, never would have seen it, never would have known anything about it, whether I had a magnifying glass or not. You have to know where to look, basically. So that's point two. Point three... <clears throat> Artists often, often employ a particular script style or color scheme to deliberately camouflage a nano signature or to draw attention to a mini or micro signature. So again, I'm employing my mini, micro, nano formulation. So again, for the purpose of orientation here are two Italian examples. At the left, the initial T in an antiphonal of about 1475, signed by the Cistercian artist Niccolo. And on the right, a martyrdom of St. Sebastian from a book of hours made <clears throat> around 1550 and signed by Pietro Perugino. Jonathan Alexander, um, who's been my guide to all things European manuscript and who you all know well from Rare Book School, he published both these works. He assures me that when you have the uh, 1475 codex in your hand, that Niccolo's nano signature really can be made out. That's the one written there. But, a combination, but the combination of gold on violet leads me uh, <clears throat> to 
surmise that the artist was more concerned with modesty or discretion than with visibility. Pietro also inscribed his name in gold, but in a place and palette that highlights rather than obscures his presence. That's the one on the right. And now here are two contemporary Persian examples that make the same point. Um, this is the opening folio in a manuscript of, <clears throat> made around 1490 or 1500 in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. It's illuminated by an artist named Azod, who framed his central gold cartouche in the title piece on the right with a cross and dash pattern that's very typical of Persian manuscripts. Um, and then he interrupted that, um, this un otherwise continuous design, on the frame's left side, which you see there, the frame's left side, um, <clears throat> and bracketed with an interlaced motif, inserted his signature and bracketed with, a, uh, with an interlaced motif, thereby making his signature as inconspicuous as possible. In other words, he tried to make his signature look like it was part of the overall design of the, of the frame, so to blend in. By contrast, a <clears throat> somewhat later artist named Ruzbahan, who's from Shiraz, ensured that we wouldn't miss his signature, uh, his name on the opening folios of the volume of circa 1560, by signing it with, within a fairly wide margin. And mind you, these are these <laughs> wide, wide, it's all relative speaking. The size is relative. And he inserted a gold cartouche. You see this on the left. He filled it with delicate white floral scrolls. And then he signed his uh, name in mini, mini black ink. There are a couple of other uh, deductions about hidden signatures to be made, which seem to have bearing on the still outstanding question of, or the still outstanding issue of why Azud and uh, Ruzbehan did what they did. But I want to quickly, quickly, I'll try to make this quick, review <coughs> uh, some more selected examples from my ongoing corpus of tiny, teeny, and teeny weeny signatures. Um, which date from the late 14th to the 16th through the 16th centuries, uh, and this I do as support for the conclusions I've just offered and um, as evidence for other hypotheses that I'll propose at the end. So as it happens, my corpus contains um, ent consists entirely of signatures within volumes of Persian poetry as opposed to prose text or histor and historical text or whatever, like the ones we've been looking at are all volumes of poetry. You can tell that because they're always written in columns, the verses rhyme across the lines. Um, and this may either reflect the limitations of my research or, as I'm sort of hoping that's going to be the case, the actual textual practices of this particular, the actual textual scope, rather, of this particular artistic practice. So the earliest... Um, recorded, again, recorded, a signature of a painter in a <clears throat> Persian manuscript occurs, appears in a poem copied in Mar the equivalent of March 1396. And this is an uh, uh, illustration of a wedding celebration. And the artist, Junay, worked, well, you see where I've circled it in red there on the left. He worked his name, his signature, into the grill work uh, in the uh, palace scene just below the, and I didn't circle this, but up above, this is actually the patron's name. So the artist put his name in just below the, the, um, the patron's name. Now, on my signature scale, this might be at mo ranked at most as a mini, and maybe shouldn't, I shouldn't mention it at all, but it does at least signal what seems to be the terminus postquem 
for the Persian artistic practice of signing paintings in contrast to the centuries-old tradition of scribal signatures in manuscripts. So again, making distinction between what scribes did and what artists, what illuminate, what I call illuminators and painters did. Um, so, and as we'll see, the formulation that he used, work of the royal painter Junaid, that's the translation, is pretty standard for uh, Persian painters. The earliest bona fide hidden signature, bona fide hidden signature, of which I'm aware, occurs in a volume now in Istanbul, dated 1452, and with a, dub- <clears throat> with a double page illuminated opening on folios one verso to two recto, bearing the name and titles of its patron, who was a member of the then ruling Timur dynasty. And just for orientation, I'm going to put this on my handout. The Timur dynasty was the one that was founded by Timur, who was more familiarly, familiarly known as Tamerlane. So this is Tamerlane's dynasty. Folio 2 Verso, which is what I have on the screen, um, includes an illuminated headpiece containing a series of superimposed nano inscriptions which are all but invisible, because nano-inscriptions tend to be all but invisible. Um, They're not visible at all in the signatures. You're going to have to take my word for it, and in turn I have to take the word of my nice colleague who actually photographed this for me. Um, At the top and bottom of the heading frame, so those are the two red boxes, top and bottom, um, there are two couplets in which a poet who has not yet been identified bemoans the absence of his beloved, very standard Persian poetry, very common theme. And on the right, <clears throat> there's another couplet that can be identified. It's by the famous 13th century poet Saadi. And finally, on the left, so that's where I've got the arrow, um, believe it or not, there is the name of the artist who penned these minuscule inscriptions and who is the same illuminator we encountered earlier in that Bibliothèque Nationale manuscript, where he's con- concealed his name by incorporating it into the cross, the white on blue design of the frame. So here I'm going to show you, this is what his signature looks like in the Paris manuscript. And this is probably maybe three eyelashes laid side by side. And I flipped it so you can see it more easily. And here he, you see how he's identified himself also as the poor servant, Azod the illuminator. May he be forgiven. And I'll talk about that particular formulation in a second. What we can't easily see, but what has been published in the Bibliothèque Nationale catalog, um, are the same two verses at the top and bottom of this title piece on the right. Um, so I'll show you a detail here. The same verses by Saadi, also in nanoscript. And there's a kind of fanciful Victorian transcription of it, but or translation. Um, so. This same, this is the same scribe. He used the same verses by Saadi. Um, so, it, sorry, this is the same illuminator. Excuse me. So, evidently, he uh, had a kind of penchant for poetic tropes, as well as secret hidden signatures. Coincidentally enough, but who knows? Maybe not. Um, <clears throat> the next example I'm going to show you. Uh, this recorded example of hidden signatures appear in a volume of one of Saadi's most famous poems, the Bustan, meaning orchard. And this particular copy is in the um, Cairo National Museum, National Library, excuse me. It's renowned among historians of Islamic art for the wealth of its internal documentation, including the name of its royal patron, who was the last ruler of the Timur dynasty, the name of its scribe, and the date and the place of its production, which was Herat in modern-day Afghanistan, 
These um, details are also on your handout. It's number 25, I think. Um, also, this manuscript is even more famous for the splendor of its pictorial program, uh, including this a double-page frontispiece and four text illustrations by the master <coughs> painter Bezod. Unfortunately, Bezod's original signature was effaced from this cartouche right here. I've outlined it where we know Bezod's signature would have been on this opening frontispiece, which supposedly depicts the patron enjoying himself on the terrace. Um, <clears throat> so luckily, his, uh, Bezod's four other signatures, ranging from mini to micro in size, uh, and we'll look at them in a second, have survived. These have survived. But before we look at Bezod, the painter, I'd like to point out the nano-signatures of the illuminator of this manuscript. Well, you can see where my arrow goes, and, and you can see the translation. Um, this on barely visible on folio 3 verso, and according to um, a recent eyewitness account by a colleague in Cairo, the same signature appears on the equivalent mirror image spot on the facing folio 4 recto, so this is three verso, so four recto would be this one, um, as well as within diagonal ornaments in the lower right and lower left of the preceding opening. So this illuminator signed his name four times in an invisible hand. Uh, none of these has been published. <clears throat> and relatively little work has been done on Yari the illuminator, uh, but he's been variously described in Persian primary sources as a contemporary of Bezod, who we're going to turn to now, and as accomplished at illumination and outlining. I think we can say, yes, he was accomplished at that. As for Bezod's presence in the same manuscript, he employed the same formulation as Yari for all four of his signatures, work of the servant Bezod. Two of these he integrated within the architectural settings of his paintings, and these are the mini signatures. And you see where the red circles are. And the other two are microscopic. <clears throat> and um, one is within the illustration of a king and a herdsman, and it appears on the lower part of the king's quiver. The king is on horseback. And the other one, within this composition of a mosque scene, appears on a book in the upper left of the composition. So, in other words, Bezat took credit for his work in formulaic fashion but he was very strategic about where he took credit, that is, where he placed himself within his four compositions, and I'll come back to this point in a bit. Meanwhile, the main observation about the Bustan, about this manuscript as a whole, is that um, <clears throat> it contains the full gamut of signatures written in standard, so standard size script by the calligrapher, and I'm sorry, I can't show you that, um, in small and smaller script by the painter Bezod, here, small and smaller, or smaller and smallest, maybe. But anyway, in the smallest script by the illuminator Yari. And here, just to remind you about, well, no, uh, yes, Mark Yari is here. Azud in the Bibliothèque Nationale is there. And so here's a kind of rhetorical question uh, or a technical point. Does Yari's hand here and that of Azud at the top we saw a moment ago um, qualify as the minuscule script known as Nasti Gubar, or dust script, said to have been invented for messages to be carried by pigeon post 
and used by scribes of medieval and early modern Iran for amulets, talismans, and like as here, small Qurans that were actually hung on standards and taken into battle. They were talismans. It's the full copy of the Quran, but for kind of used for talismanic purposes. Uh, one Arabic source also refers to this script as Gubar Ahilia, meaning four secrets. The letters of this script measure at the most three millimeters high and sometimes as small as one and a half millimeters. So um, was the question, was this, was this script also used for copies of Persian poetry? Maybe so. I've never seen one. Um, I've never, personally never seen it, but a, a 16th century account of Persian, 16th century Persian account of calligraphers does mention people writing in this uh, small script. And from other contemporary Persian sources, we know that microscopic drawing and illumination were greatly admired. Several artists were extolled for such skill, including one whose painting, whose painting of a rider, spear or a mounted horseman, spearing a lion, quote, fit on, at, on the end of a grain of rice. It's like the proverbial angel, right, dancing on the head of a pin. Of course, it's hyperbolic, but it tells us something about what the perception, contemporary perception of these, this accomplishment was. So returning for a moment to Bezad um, <clears throat> in the Bustan, art historians tend to place him within the courtly milieu of the last ruler of the Timurid dynasty. But this master had a second career, um, and he was director of the Royal Library and Manuscript work top Workshop under the successive dynasty of the Safavids, and he had a lot of influence on the next generation of court painters during the opening decades of the 16th century. So it's probably no coincidence that a rising uh, Safavid artist named, uh, he was by the name of Sultan Muhammad, <clears throat> seems to have followed Bezad's lead in the way he asserted authorship for two paintings in a royal manuscript dated, um, produced around 1525, 1527. Sorry. And here are his two paintings, both inscribed the work of Sultan Muhammad the Iraqi um, in a miniature hand and both worked into the architecture and architectural decor. And one on the right, which depicts the a feast at the end of Ramadan, which has just been just passed last week, um, signed, well, you can see where I have my red circle. Um, and the signature is surrounded by um, uh, other epithets, conquest, long life, support, victory, prosperity, opportunity. Um, um, and sorry, this is meant to be, this is some art historians say this is an idealized portrait of the patron of the manuscript, the, perhaps the ruler of the Safavid dynasty, Shah Tahmas. His other signature, and I have to go back, appears in the so-called allegory of drunkenness. You see those guys staggering around, they're supposed to be Sufis, who aren't supposed to be drinking, but they were, in the cartouche over the side doorway. Now, I grant you that both signatures could be considered a bit more conspicuous than even many ones, the ones that Bezad inserted into two of his compositions in the Cairo Bustan, and so they, these may not belong in my corpus. And by the way, I should have mentioned, Iraqi in this case means that Sultan Muhammad came from the western part of Iran, not, not modern-day Iraq. So let me just compare and remind us, going ahead, um, that um, <clears throat> there's a kind of connection in my mind between where Bezad wrote his signature on the bottom of the quiver uh, uh, worn by the royal hunter and where Sultan Muhammad put his signature directly underneath the portrait of 
his royal maybe patron or certainly central character. And recall too that Bezad calls himself the servant or slave, which is a common modesty trope in Persian literature and painting. It doesn't mean you're either a slave or a servant, just as a way of um, humbling yourself. Um, and uh, whereas uh, Sultan Muhammad, as I just mentioned, refers, qualifies himself with a geographic referent, Iraqi, I am from Western Iraq, Iran. Um, so I think we're sort of seeing here kind of a shift, um, not a very subtle one, in artistic self-perception or self-consciousness, and whether this is a personal quirk or a period development is yet another point to take up some other time. So, by far the most um, prolific and varied and in a way unpredictable producer of mini macro and nano signatures of all 16th century Persian artists is the one with whom I met, opened this presentation in the uh, Abdullah of Shiraz. We found him in the Fir of Jami. And here is again his teeny weeny signature in the heading of the, that begins the Yusuf and Zuleikha poem, uh, completed in 1557, uh, the, the transcription of the poem uh, for this manuscript, 1557. Seven years later, Abdullah signed um, uh, a painting of an old man in a landscape, which was clearly part of a double-page frontispiece, and we don't have what would be for a Persian manuscript. The right half is missing. But unlike his Freer Jami signature, Abdullah wrote this one quite prominently on an angle on a rock at the left side of the composition. You see the translation there, and he gave the date, very helpful, um, corresponding to 1564 to 65, 972 of the Hijri era. Some years later, he repeated the same formula uh, within a volume of poems composed by his old patron, Sultan Ibrahim Mirza, who by this time was deceased. Um, and he inscribed his signature on a stone in the foreground. So you see the translation on this stone. The painter has written that the world lacks constancy, therefore be happy. Work of Abdullah, the illuminator, the year... Um, 990, the last digit is missing, the equivalent of 1582-83. So it's noteworthy to me, at least, that on <clears throat> these various paintings, Abdullah chose to register his name for uh, perpetuity by engraving it, as it were, on a rocky surface, and in this particular case, to reinforce that enduring accomplishment, perhaps ironically with a kind of carpe diem adage. Uh, furthermore, and in the spirit of constancy, the artist presents himself consistently as an illuminator, while at the same time leaving no doubt that he was responsible for the paintings, that he was the painter. So given the self-identification as an illuminator, mutahib <coughs> in Persian, it's uh, in Arabic, it's no surprise that he, during the same period, the same uh, artist, Abdullah, continued to hide his signature within illuminated frontispieces. And here's an example did I not? Oh, yes, I circled it on the left, so you can then see the detail on the right. And this is a manuscript dated 1579. Um, and this is actually in the same manuscript in which he signed his signature on the rock and asked us to be happy. So, again, a case where he could, he could an artist could kind of go to things. So, I have lots more examples. I'm sure that you've seen more than enough. Um, so, it's, I think, time to consider the meaning of these mini, micro, and nano signatures, uh, what, at least what they might signify. 
So let me remind you of the <coughs> hypotheses that I offered at the outset. Oops, sorry, here's another one of Abdullah. And here are my hypotheses and that I've tried to demonstrate. And <coughs> here's another that might have equally broad applicability. And that is, so I'm going to go ahead, that hidden signatures appear most frequently in Persian manuscripts with colophons recording the names of their scribes and in manuscripts created for royal, princely, or other courtly patrons. So I'm showing you again the Cairo Bustan. And this perfect example made for the last ruler we know, made for the last ruler of the Timur dynasty. That scribes signed their work conspicuously and in expected places, namely the colophons, and illuminators and painters inconspicuously and in unexpected or at least less expected places seems to confirm what has long been a stereotype um, <clears throat> about Persian manuscripts, uh, or about, sorry, calligraphers in Iran and other Muslim cultures, namely that the status of calligraphers was more elevated than other practitioners of the book art. But I, with seeing these examples, I have to ask if that really is the case. Perhaps Bezad, the painter on the left, Yari, the illuminator on the right, and the others uh, whose examples I've shown you, were actually signaling epigraphic or calligraphic virtuosity with their displays of tiny, teeny, and teeny-weeny signatures. You, Mr. Scribe, can write an elegant and legible hand, but three cheers for you, but I have mastered the far more challenging art of invisibility. The relationship between <clears throat> artist and patron may be read as similarly, multi similarly multivalent. On the one hand, placing your name on the tip of a royal quiver or on the base of a throne certainly could have been intended as a gesture of humility. Or, as has also been proposed with reference to the Cairo Bustan, especially the, well, both of them actually, as a, a joke, a pun, because Bezal was also known to have produced leather work, like livers, and, of course, he was a master of the book art, so these, the placement of these could be just drawing attention to his, what, we already, what was already known at the time about him. So, um, as for expressions of subservience, um, signing your name under the base of a throne, as Sultan Muhammad did here, certainly places you under the foot of your, or under the posterior, of your patron. The additional formulaic phrases with which Sultan Muhammad surrounded his signature in this painting were doubtless yet another way for him to privately convey good wishes to his patron during the feast marking the end of Ramadan, which is what this painting comes from. So these mini and micro signatures might combine deference with a bit of self-promotion or braggadocio or something along those lines. As for even um, more Covert and disguised signatures, such as those by Abdullah, oops, getting ahead of myself, no, you saw it on my mic. Such as those that Abdullah Shiraz inserted into several illuminations, I like to suggest that the artist was challenging the various patrons of those books to seek out and find his name, similar to the way that Al Hirschfeld teased the readers of the New York Times during that graphic illustrator's long career. And as you, many of you know, although if you saw the review of the, the recent Hirschfeld book in the, yesterday's New York Times, it turns out that those of you under 45 may not have a clue to, 
what this is about. But those of you over should do, I'm sure. Um, and then those of you uh, in that category will know that what Hirschfeld signed as his father was not his name, but that of his daughter, Nina. And he always wrote at the end of his name here, which is perfectly legible, the number of Ninas to be found in any given drawing. A far less recognized and thus even more private game of the same kind continues to be played out in the weekly issues of The Economist magazine, where the lead political cartoonist hides the name of family members within his caricatures. Don't ask me anything more. I'm sworn to secrecy. Literally. Abdullah gave his princely patron a similar kind of clue or sign in the poem he wrote within the heading to the Yusuf and Zuleha poem uh, narrative. A uh, clue I'd like to propose as the visual equivalent of the Persian poetic tradition known as muama, or riddles, in which um, in, with riddles in verse form containing hidden and enigmatic letter or word allusions requiring complex solutions. The composition of these riddles was all the rage in the late 15th century. Uh, that's the late 15th century court of the Timurid dynasty, and thus were a poetic genre that might have inspired or influenced Bezad and Yari during their work on the Bustan manuscript of 1488, and one that continued, continued to occupy poets, painters, and princes during the 16th century. Safavid pr practitioners included Abdullah's own patron, Sultan Ibrahim Mirza, who was praised by contemporary chroniclers as peerless in the art of metrics, rhyming, and puzzles. And what better game could Abdullah devise for such a discerning and talented patron than a bit of artistic hide-and-seek at the start of this poem, uh, maybe even setting it up, these kind of scenarios, setting up so he was on hand, Abdullah was on hand when Sultan Ibrahim Mirza first read the poetic inscription and then let his eye drift downwards the way mine did 110 years ago to see the signature below, and then he went, aha, no. So this is art historical fantasy or projection, but I wonder if it's not also behind Sheikh Mohammed's signature in the same manuscript, the Freer Jami manuscript. It's actually within the same part of the poem, same poem, one of the seven poems by Jami. So Sheikh Mohammed clearly expected that Ibrahim Mirza would read the archway inscription in orange and doubtless counted on the prince, who was already maybe on the lookout because of what was in the title piece, uh, who's already on the lookout for surprises, that he would then, he, the patron, would spot the artist's signature angled into the nearby brick. In addition, Sheikh Mohammed, I propose, may have been cl cleverly mimicking Abdullah and or engaging here in a bit of artistic competition or one-upsmanship flaunting his own prowess at miniaturization, harder word to pronounce, and enigma, his signature achievement, in anticipation of even greater praise from their shared patron. <clears throat> at the outset of this talk, and I'm wrapping up in a minute, and, but except this is a blank, I referred to minuscule and hidden signatures as acts of artistic concealment, or to put it another way, as acts of secrecy. There is an old tradition with Islamic culture, within Islamic cultures, recently studied with regards to diverse Arab Islamic discourses, in which secrecy is identified as a marker of self. 
These texts include early Arabic romances and emphasize the role and function of the secret in its representation of the self, self-other relations, and subjectivity. According to these studies, secrecy is deployed in love literature chiefly for rhetorical reasons, because it invites or generates revelation. In essence, a defining trait of secrecy is that it is always accompanied by revelation. So the riddles I mentioned a moment ago could be another manifestation of this conceal and reveal discourse or dichotomy. And I don't know whether this literary or philosophical investigation can be applied to the visual arts and to what extent the phenomenon of hidden signatures in 15th and 16th century Persian manuscripts was grounded in such cultural contexts. I really don't know yet. But it's really tempting to speculate that Abdullah deliberately concealed so that his artistic self as a master of secret writing might be surprisingly revealed to Sultan Ibrahim Mirza and his other patrons. So I'm going to end now on a, more, on a firmer art historical note. As far as I know, Sheikh Mohammed hid his signature, that is to say hid himself, only once, and that was in the Freer Jami, in that two-millimeter brick. He did, however, sign other works, including calligraphic samples, and always in a place and size that is fairly visible, as these two examples, and I've given you the translations. Interestingly, his signed pictures are all album paintings or single-figure studies, as opposed to manuscript illustrations. So these were made to be pasted in sort of the equivalent of scrapbooks, much fancier than that, albums. And among the last such work he did <clears throat> is this tinted drawing, inscribed, design of Master Sheikh Abdullah and pen of Akha Reza, and dated the equivalent of 5, uh, 1591 to 92. So this was a collaborative effort between a by then aging artist, that is Sheikh Mohammed, and a rising star, Akha Reza, whose compositions already reflected a growing interest in the personality of his subjects, that is, Aharezas. Although there are other examples of discrete signatures within later Persian manuscripts and also Indian manuscripts, I found some of those recently, it appears that by the end of the 16th century, artistic opacity was being increasingly supplanted by full transparency. Who's hiding here? I am. Thank you. I'm sorry, I see now that I overstayed my time limit, so I apologize. Oh, all right, fine. Just not about The Economist. Please. Uh, yes, thank you. And I should have said something at the beginning, um, knowing the audience. Um, <clears throat> I know that in the study of Western European manuscripts, the word illumination includes painting, pictorial representation. Um, for Persian manuscript studies, Islamic manuscript studies, we tend to use illumination to mean the decoration, the abstract, arabesque, geometric, floral. Um, do you need me to show you an example, or you can? You know what I was talking about. Yeah. And uh, painting, or il sorry, illustration, for me, is something that depicts a part of the text in pictorial form. So it's very simple. And thank you. I should have said that at the outset. Please? Yes, thank you for eye-opening the introduction to a corpus utterly unfamiliar to me, but also to such an interesting topic. 
I was really intrigued by your almost side comment that most of these small signatures are found in uh, manuscripts of poetic books. Yes. And I'm wondering, and this may seem terribly romantic, but mm -hmm. put it out there anyway, whether there may have been something, whether the texts themselves may have been considered to be somehow either hermetic or difficult, and therefore it was a particularly mm. appropriate place Ooh. for the artist to present his signature in a difficult or hermetic what an interesting point. Thank you so much. Um, I'm, I'm not sure you used hermetic and another adjective. What, what, what? Difficult. Difficult. These poems are actually very complex, and they can be read. Uh, the, the Jami poetry, um, well, again, I'll show you again, but, well, Jami's poems are described, excuse me, generally as narrative and didactic, but he was, Jami was the head of a Sufi order, the Naqshbandiya order, they're totally imbued with deep spiritual values, um, which uh, I'm, not, I'm not a Persian literature specialist, so I've always kind of glossed over that. But um, uh, indeed, it could very well be that. Uh, that let's let's put it, think of it this way: that the artists were like rising to the challenge of the te the complexity of the text. Great point. Thank you very much for that. Yes. Oh, do or do not contain signatures. Well, I can tell you that for let's say early modern. Let's just say let's just say sixteenth for the to be. So well, there are probably thousands of manuscripts. Maybe if you're if we're lucky, fifty to sixty percent, maybe fifty, forty to fifty percent have a scribal signature in the colophon, and maybe three um, percent have the signature that's been recognized. Remind you, they could be more, it's hidden ones, uh, a recognized signature by an, an illuminator or um, artist. And sometimes the name of an illuminator, especially, not so much the names of a painter, but the names of the illuminator are included in the colophon. That is, assuming that the scribe, the calligrapher wrote the colophon, that he, although calligraphers can be women, but he or she, could include the name of other artists who participated in the project as well as the name of the patrons. But the percentage of actual signed um, um, paintings, paintings, illustrations, is very, very small. And the study of Persian painting has invested enormous energy, um, but not by me, in um, identifying hands. So we have painter A, painter B style of, you know, Abdullah, whatever. Um, and that's well. Sorry, it's a, those are exercises in connoisseurship, which occupied at least two, maybe three generations of scholarship in the field of Persian manuscript studies. And today, effort—the greater effort. Sorry, this is a long-winded answer—is um, to put things in a more social and historical context. Sir, in the back. Um, at Jefferson's University, I hate to bring up religion, but. You, we spoke earlier today about Oliver Barr, and yes. Oliver Barr's problem of Islam art. And could it not be possible that the, the, the written poetry and what a scribe actually does, which is to write language, 
is thought of in this Islamic context as being something a little bit different than uh, creating images of living things. And so in some ways there's that mosaic prohibition that's very well known in Islamic art and that the illuminators <coughs> may want in fact to retract a little bit in terms of their their identity in that project? That's a, a big question or a big comment, and um, I'll just <clears throat> reply by saying that the uh, well-known uh, prohibition against figural imagery is, refers, uh, is relevant only for works that deal with the faith of Islam and generally uh, monumental works, the decoration, say, of mosques, or the decoration of lamps that hang in mosques, or the decoration of madrasas, that it does not apply whatsoever to the uh, creation and uh, decoration or representation of figural imagery in private works, which is what manuscripts are, of course, handwritten, one person, two people maybe, see them at a time, uh, and uh, similarly, objects that were used in the context of daily life, uh, decorated ceramics, decorated metalwork, are full of figural imagery. So uh, whether or not any of these artists, like Abdullah's name, um, you know, is blessed of God, equivalent. So, but that's, you know, we have lots of Abdullahs today. To what extent the nomenclature refers to their actual religious practices uh, that would require a lot more research than has been done so far. So I um, don't deny that these works, these manuscripts were created in the context of a Muslim culture. Iran, as you may know, especially in the 16th century, <coughs> is, and remains today Shiite as opposed to Sunni. So that's a whole other um, context in which to consider uh, the pictorial representations. But um, the number of objects and the number of manuscripts that contain figural representations are, we're talking thousands and thousands, so um, I don't know to what extent you can kind of, one can uh, one can certainly consider it, but I'm not sure the explanation is so much in a religious context. At least that's not the perspective I come from. One more question I'm told. Yes. Oops, sorry. Yes. Yes. So, that's such a great question. Can I go back to the beginning? Can I? Well, I saw this in um, the introduction kindly mentioned, sort of the year I received my PhD. So I saw this manuscript about two or three years after I got my PhD when I was not wearing these. And this one 15 years later when, um, and I was also looking at a transparency on my, now those of you under 45 also won't know necessarily what a light table is, but I had a light table in my study. I was looking at the transparency on the light table. So, sorry, that's too personal a response, but the point is that, no, we do have, it's true, there is a, rep, uh, there is a, a representation, I wouldn't call it a portrait, but a representation of one Persian artist, the representation of an album drawing like the last one I showed you, album painting, uh, dates from 
the middle or latter part of the 16th century, actually supposed to be of the painter Bezat, and he is wearing glasses. So maybe the artists wore glasses when they wrote these things. I mean, glasses were available, but somebody else knows about the history of optics, and I don't. Um, but I can tell you, this is a young person's game. <laughs> so uh, now I'm kind of, you know, maybe I fall across these because they're reproduced, or, and I just, well, the, the forthcoming book actually will be out in October. Uh, an exhibition at Princeton. I thought I'd found a hidden signature in that, and I went crazy. And Don Skemmer, who many of you know at Firestone Library, which houses the manuscript, took a micro photograph for me so I could see that what looked like a signature to my older eyes isn't. So, is that, shall we? That's great. Thank you. Appreciate it.